Well, I don't think it's any secret that we, we live in a culture today <clears throat> with a very temporal or worldly focus. And what I mean by that is that we get told to, to focus on the, the here and the now. We get told that we need to, to live in the moment without really focusing on what might lie ahead of us. And this sort of focus can be dangerous on multiple levels, but because of this focus, we, we tend to concentrate on our wants rather than our needs. For example, if you were to ask me to write down my two most significant needs about four months ago, it'd be for healing and job security because in that moment, I was in a desperate place for healing and job security. And if you was to ask me that night that I was in the hospital, it was, it was pretty funny, to be honest. But my two most significant needs that night were for pain management, which was probably reasonable. And the other thing that I was most worried about that night was making sure that my professors knew that I'd be turning in some late homework. And if you was to ask me today what my two most important things are, it'd probably be a beach and enough money to not have to work again. Because I love the beach and I hate being cold. But our hearts and our minds get so focused on, on the here and now and living for this very moment that we, we tend to lose this eternal perspective that we've been given. You can turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. It should be on the screen for you as well. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And I want us to think about these today. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But see, we forget that what matters most in this life is our love for God and our love for others. John Barry, he says, we must be a people who seek God above ourselves. We must be a people who put the needs of others before our own. And we must want the glory of God among all people, above all things. You see, this is what having an eternal perspective looks like. But when we start to lose that eternal perspective for the here and the now, we start losing any sense of what really matters. And it becomes a matter of our wants above all else. And see, Paul reminds the church at Colossae there in Colossians 3 that they need to keep their eternal focus, and they do this by seeking the things that are above rather than the things on this earth. And this worldly focus, it's not some new concept that's found here in the 21st century. 
We'll experience this ourselves, but it's also this timeless truth that God has given us all throughout his word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to see it in our text today. But before we get into our text, I want us to look at the story so far in Mark. More specifically, I want us to recount the moments when Jesus exercised his authority. You can look at Mark chapter 1 in verses 21 through 28, and we see Jesus exercise his authority in his teaching. Now, we can only speculate here, but it's reasonable to believe that the religious teachers in that day, those that were teaching in the synagogues, had become very lax in their, in their teaching. And then enters this Jesus who comes in and he teaches with such a force and a passion and authority that he's leaving the people just in awe. In other words, the people were simply blown away at the way that Jesus was teaching them. And then there was this interruption that we've seen. In verse 23, tells us that this man with an unclean or evil spirit begins to cry out. And we need to understand this in verse 24, that the demons themselves knew exactly who Jesus was. They even called him the Holy One of God. And then Jesus rebukes the evil spirit, and it comes out of the man after inflicting some pain, and the people are once again just left in awe. They're in pure amazement at what Jesus can do. And then last week, we read verses 29 through 45. And we've seen Jesus and, and his disciples traveling to the house of Simon Peter where his mother-in-law is sick in bed. Jesus learns of the illness, and we see Jesus exercise his authority over the disease. And now something that is important to notice here is that Simon's mother-in-law, when she was healed of this disease, she immediately began to serve. Because this is what happens when we experience the restoration power of Jesus in our lives. We begin to serve and we begin to love in ways that we never did before. Out of love and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done, we serve. And there's no waiting period. We don't get saved and say, well, thanks Jesus. Now give me about 10 years to finish the stuff that I need to finish and then I will serve you. Then I'll serve your church. Then I'll love the people that you've given me to love. No, we, we are saved and then we're transformed. Our hearts are renewed and, and out of that we immediately begin to serve and love in any way that we can. And then moving on, we see Jesus exercise authority for a second time over the demon-possessed. And then Jesus and his disciples begin to move through Galilee so that Jesus can move forward in his preaching ministry. 
And to finish up the text from last week, we saw Jesus heal a leper. And after healing this man, Jesus told him to, to go to the priest to show himself and make an appropriate sacrifice so that he would once again be clean amongst society. And this week, we'll see Jesus exercising his authority yet again. Only this time, the healing that is experienced goes far deeper than a, a physical illness or a demon possession. This is also the, the beginning of five controversies that we're going to see from here through chapter 3. And in this first controversy, it's Jesus healing the sins of this paralytic man and the religious leaders getting pretty upset about it. And then they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And there are three confirmations that we'll see in our text today. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. Three confirmations that we'll see today is one, this connection between the forgiveness of sin and a fallen creation. And two, the importance in having faith in healing, in the healing power of Jesus Christ. And three, most importantly, we'll see this confirmation that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And now you can, you can turn to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 1 through verse 12. Starting in verse 1, it says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so through verses 1 through 5, we see that Jesus heads back home, and the people are now flocking to hear him and hoping that they will get to witness one of these miracles being performed. 
in verses 1 and 2 sort of sets the scene for us. See, Jesus and his disciples are, are back in Capernaum, and news about Jesus was beginning to travel at an accelerated rate. See, people were hearing the stories, and, and upon Jesus' arrival back in Capernaum, the people, they started coming to see for themselves and to experience this teaching with authority. And the text says that there was so many people gathered that there was no more room inside of the house. So essentially it was standing room only and Jesus was preaching the word. Now, think about this for a moment. Have you ever been to a major sporting event or a popular concert and you had to get tickets in the standing room only sections? It can be pretty miserable especially if you're an introvert like me and you're standing shoulder to shoulder. Except for the fact that you're getting to watch your, your favorite team or your artist perform on stage. And in a sense, the same thing is happening here. The people heard that Jesus was coming back and they were willing to be uncomfortable for a little bit so that they could see Jesus preach. And again, it was, it was standing room only. And so I really, I want us to really think about this. These people who had previously experienced Jesus' teaching, healing and casting out demons, they heard that he was back in town and they got excited about it. so excited that they were willing to cram themselves inside of a tiny house just to hear Jesus teach. And so the question stands, do we get excited? When we open the Bible for ourselves, do we get excited to hear God speak to us through his word? Better yet, do we, do we get excited to come to church on Sunday morning to hear the word proclaimed, knowing that God is going to speak to us through his word? We should. And I'll be the first to admit that I don't always get excited. You see... Sometimes we, we forget the real reason that we even come to church. And when we do, we tend to, to be a whole lot less excited about it. Sometimes we forget why it is that we open up the Bible in the first place. And when we forget, we tend to not be so excited about it anymore. And what happens is we begin to lose that eternal perspective and we decide that sleeping in or not missing that football game, suddenly that's a lot more important than it is to gather with the saints and worship the God who has given us everything. See, these people, they didn't just cram into the nosebleed section of this house because it's what they did. 
They gathered in this house shoulder to shoulder because they were excited to hear this man preach with authority. And there's a lot that we can learn from these people when we we pay attention to those smaller details in the text that often get ignored. So not only were these people getting excited to hear from Jesus, but some of these people were even starting to put their faith in Jesus. And then moving into verses 3 through 5, we see that this controversy begins to, to play out. Verses 3 through 5 begin to move us forward in this first controversy between Jesus and these religious leaders. And it also begins to reveal the first two confirmations that I mentioned earlier. That one, there's this connection between sinfulness and the fallen creation. And two, there's an importance of exercising faith in the healing power of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we see these four men. They bring a friend who is paralyzed to see Jesus in hopes that Jesus will heal this man. And now this should paint for us this beautiful picture of what brotherly love looks like. These four men carried their friend on some sort of stretcher or bed to this house. Not so they could boast in what they had just done, but so that Jesus might heal their friend. And I can tell you from personal experience, carrying somebody on a stretcher for a long period of time is not an easy task. And in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 through 31, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God and love people, right? And then in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And again, in in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, we're told that by this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. See, God loves us enough that he provided a way for us to be restored. And we ought to be a people that reciprocates that love by bringing others to know Jesus. The greatest expression of love that we have been shown is life through Christ. And the greatest expression of love that we can show others is to bring them to Jesus Christ. Now these four men, they loved their friend. But let us remember the eternal perspective here. Charles Spurgeon, the the prince of preachers, he says, "You, you do not love the Lord at all 
unless you love the souls of others. Our love for God is expressed in our love towards others. But some might ask, what does this love look like? Augustine of Hippo, he answers this question by saying that love has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. So love is seeing those without Christ and bringing them to know Christ. And then moving on to verses 4 and 5, we, we continue to see this act of brotherly love play out before us. And now, remember, it's standing room only in this house. And so these four men, they can't just walk up to Jesus with this stretcher. And the text explains to us that these men, being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof over which he was. Now, these men knew that Jesus was their only hope. So they were desperate enough to do whatever it took to get their friend in front of Jesus. And because of the way houses were constructed in that time period, and still are in some places, they knew that they could go through the roof, but it was going to take some work. See, houses in this time period, they were built with mud and whatever else they could find to use to, to make the structure sturdy. And the roof on these houses, they weren't like ours. They were flat, and they were used for a lot of different purposes. And most of these houses would have had a, a staircase that went up the side of the house all the way up to the roof. Now these men, they carried their friend up this staircase onto the roof of the house. And they began to dig through the hardened mud and grass or palm leaves that would have been used. And again, this, this was not some easy task. But they loved their friend enough to do whatever it took to get him in front of Jesus. And eventually they break through enough to where they can lower their friend down and get him in front of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their faith, looks at the man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, remember those first two confirmations that I told us about. The first is this connection between sin and fallen creation. Now, what I'm not saying is that our sicknesses and diseases are some direct result of some sort of personal sin that we're in. I'm also not saying it isn't, because there's some sins that cause sickness and death. But because of the fall, 
What we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, this world has been subjected to brokenness. So what I am saying is that because of that first sin by Adam and Eve, we today experience sin and death and illness, evil in the world, and even natural disasters happening all across the globe. But this man was not brought to Jesus for the forgiveness of his sin. It was for a physical impairment. And what we see is that Jesus forgave the man of his sin before he healed the man of his physical impairment. This also reveals to us that Jesus was more than just a healer of the sick. And the forgiveness of our sinful rebellion against God is always the primary restoration that we experience through Jesus Christ. And now the second confirmation we see is the importance of faith in the healing power of Christ. While our primary concern should always be the forgiveness of sin, we can and we should still seek healing through the power of Jesus Christ. Ricky mentioned this last week, that it's okay to seek healing from God. And I can tell you from a recent personal experience, that God is still in the business of healing. I'm living standing proof of it. So we should confidently and in faith approach the throne of God to seek healing on behalf of ourselves and our friends, our family, our loved ones. Now that doesn't mean that it's always going to happen in the way that we want it to. But it doesn't mean that God's not going to do it. And the man in this story, he was healed. He was healed both physically and spiritually through faith and faith alone. And Martin Luther, he says this about faith. Faith is nothing but believing what God promises or says. Whatever remarkable thing we read of happening in the Old or New Testament, we read that it was done by faith, not by works, not by some general faith, but by faith directed to the matter in hand. So do we believe what God promises throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? If we do, our faith will be great. But if we don't, then we begin to lose this eternal perspective that we've been given and will not come to God for much of anything of real significance. And now we start to see this, this tension get a little thicker when the scribes who are witnessing this begin to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. So moving to verses 6 through 7, we're told that these scribes who have witnessed everything happening are now reasoning in their hearts. 
In other words, the scribes are thinking to themselves, who does this guy think he is? Doing what only God can do. He's blaspheming God. And now this word blasphemy, it simply means to disrespect or to mock God. So what they're saying is that by Jesus telling this man that his sins are forgiven, something only God can do means that either Jesus is God or Jesus is mocking God. And then we see Jesus' response to this happening. And Jesus asks the question, why are you reasoning in your hearts this way? So we see Jesus being fully God. He not only has the authority to forgive sins, but he also knows the hearts of man. And that should scare us. But Jesus goes on to ask another question, and then he makes this very important theological statement. In verses 9 through 11, he says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up. Pick up your mat and go to your home. See, Jesus, he poses a simple rhetorical question here. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? In other words, Jesus is saying that it would be really easy to simply tell this man in front of all these people that his sins are forgiven. Because who would really know? It's like me running up to some skeptic and telling him that all of my sins have been forgiven. How would they ever know if they actually were or not? Unless they believed through faith in the one who forgives. And so Jesus, he turns to this man and he tells him, go ahead. Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. You see, if, if that man had remained on the ground paralyzed, Jesus would have proven himself to be a fake and guilty of blasphemy. But by this man getting up and walking out of that house in front of everyone, Jesus revealed two things. One, that he has the authority to heal. And two, he has the authority to forgive sin. And in doing this, he proved that he was truly God incarnate. See, the Son of Man, fully God and fully man, is the chief authority on healing and forgiving sin. So at this point, we're seeing the, that third confirmation that Jesus truly is the Holy One of God, just as the demons said. And then in verse 12, in this truly miraculous moment, the man gets up and he walks out of the house. 
And everyone's glorifying God in their amazement. <clears throat> so ever since the sin of, of Adam and Eve, the world has been in a fallen state, which experiences death and decay. And the central theme of the message that Jesus is preaching is that God is reclaiming his, his creation. And through the forgiveness of sin and even in the healing and restoration of the human body, God is restoring what was broken in the fall. And one day, all things will be made new. But do we believe this? Is this where our faith is when we experience sin and death and brokenness in this world? Does knowing this drive us to love our neighbor in such a way that our primary concern for them is the, the forgiveness of their sin? Are the souls of men more important or is it the stuff of this world? Do we have an eternal perspective or are we simply focusing on the things of this world? See, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we will see that, that faith is always in close connection to every healing that takes place. And in chapter 6, we'll see that Jesus was not able to heal on account of the lack of faith by the people. And that doesn't mean that we have to somehow muster up some sort of faith within ourselves. But it does tell us that to flat out reject God and his promises reveals a lack of trust and dependence on the only one who can do these things for us. And one of the hardest truths that I've had to wrestle with in Scripture is that those who reject God will themselves be rejected. See, Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, it says, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's a scary thought. And it can be a hard truth to swallow, but the good news is the verse just before that. It's Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. It says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess them before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, will forever acknowledge us as we acknowledge him. And this is good news. And we can find our, our rest and our restoration in Christ today. So if you're a Christian, if you've acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior before men, then Christ is acknowledging you right now before the Father. See, Christ is our, our mediator with the Father. In other words, he's, he's speaking on our behalf and has restored our souls by forgiving our sin. 
And this is accomplished through faith and faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ for his people. And we can rest in this. And this truth should also turn our focus from worldly things to eternal things. Driving us to love God and love people by bringing those around us to Christ. And Ricky, y'all can come on up. <clears throat> and if you're not a Christian, if you're unsure if you're a Christian, then we make this plea to you today as we do every single week to not harden your hearts against Christ. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Savior and find rest for your souls because the things of this world cannot compare with the things of our God and King. And we don't want you to leave here today without fully understanding the gospel and what it means for you personally. And so I'll, I'll be in the back if anyone needs to, to pray or just needs to speak about anything. And we want y'all to understand that, that we're here. If you don't understand the gospel, then ask. It's the most important thing that you'll ever understand in your entire life. Let's pray.